2: Welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. What do we have up for today, Alex? Now, today
0: we have part two of our two-part episode on the first Democratic debates of the election in 2020. Now we've got another 10 candidates, and some of these are more the major ones, uh, with Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Pete Buttigieg, and Bernie Sanders, along with several others. Now we listened to the entire debate and decided to feature a bunch of the questions that candidates have been asked, starting with the initial question asked to Bernie Sanders. Now, much like the last debate, the moderator's framing of the questions is persuasive. And we also hear how candidates bring out their best spin to not answer questions. In this first clip, we have an example of both where Sanders is asked a question and then decidedly doesn't answer it. And he does it in kind of a clever way. So let's take a listen to the first clip.
4: And we're gonna start today with Senator Sanders. Good evening to you. You've called for big new government benefits like universal health care and free college. In a recent interview, you said you suspected that Americans would be, quote, delighted to pay more taxes for things like that. My question to you is, will taxes go up for the middle class in a Sanders administration? And if so, how do you sell that to voters?
5: Well, you're quite right. We have a new vision for America. And at a time when we have three people in this country owning more wealth than the bottom half of America, While 500,000 people are sleeping out on the streets today, we think it is time for change, real change. And by that, I mean that healthcare, in my view, is a human right. And we have got to pass a Medicare for All single payer system. (laughs) Under that system, by the way, vast majority of the people in this country will be paying significantly less for healthcare than they are right now. I believe that education is the future for this country. And that is why I believe that we must make public colleges and universities tuition free and eliminate student debt. And we do that by placing a tax on Wall Street. Every proposal that I have brought forth is fully paid for.
4: Senator Sanders, I'll give you 10 seconds just to ask the, answer the very direct question. Will you raise taxes for the middle class in the Sanders administration?
5: People who have health care under Medicare for all will have no premiums, no deductibles, no co-payments, no out-of-pocket exp- out expenses. Yes, they will pay more in taxes, but less in health care for what they get.
4: Thank you, Senator.
2: So right here from the very beginning, we hear Bernie Sanders starting to persuasively frame this issue. All right. Savannah Guthrie asks him this question, right? My question to you is, will taxes go up for the middle class in a Sanders administration? And if so, how do you sell that to the voters? And then Sanders says, well, you're quite right. We have a new vision for America. And then he goes into a speech. But what exactly is it that he's agreeing with when he says you're quite right it seems to agree with what she said, right? It's what in NLP we would call a pace. So that's a pacing statement. You're quite right. You're agreeing with the person. You're acknowledging where they are. And yet, what was it specifically that he was agreeing with in what she said? Well, I don't think there really was anything. Instead, he was perhaps agreeing with something of what he thought that she should have said or what he wished that he was you know, being asked there. And then he goes into this, new way of saying basically the same message and what do we know about Bernie right this is what he does throughout just about every speech in which he creates every speech he talks about economy every speech he does the top one percent and the bottom half and this time it's three people and it's sleeping out in the streets and it's time for change real change now this is kind of interesting because if you remember back to when Obama was elected, what was Obama's campaign slogan? Change you can believe in. So Sanders has really tailored his message to this in a very interesting way, which is that now he's not just talking about change. He's talking about real change. And if you'll notice, one of the things he does is he continues to talk about belief. I believe. I believe. I believe this. I believe that.
0: Yeah, he really does a great job here of really avoiding the question. Of course, she asked him that very direct question of would people pay more taxes in the Sanders administration and she reiterates that right there after, you know, giving him some time, most of his time in fact, to avoid the question, asks him it directly again and you can almost see the the thought process in his head as his eyes are moving around there of like am I actually going to answer this question or am I going to pivot? And you know what? He sort of pivots for a little bit, but gets to, yes, they would pay more taxes, but less in actual healthcare. So, you know, he had the moment to really frame and to speak about that question right there. I just don't think that he was um, he was expected that she would ask him that follow up question and then he didn't have enough time to reframe his actual proposal and gave a rather sort of unsatisfying, like not fully explained um,
2: uh, answer. Yeah, it's so interesting to see what happens, even with some of the most prepared politicians. Like, you know that Bernie has given this speech. He's talked about this hundreds, if not thousands of times. He said it so, so many times. And yet, when she just asks him this very direct question, are people going to pay taxes, yes or no, and he only has 10 seconds, he kind of runs out of room for himself to pivot away, you know, then from that. And so this is... You know, to start off with, we hear how the moderators, we talked about in the last episode, our part one of this review of these debates, we talked about how the moderators were taking this stance of being the shaper of the message. The moderators are now being able to persuasively ask these questions in order to get a certain type of response. And here we hear the moderator asking Sanders, obviously starting off with this, in a very pointed way for a pointed particular purpose. And we also hear, of course, the candidates doing their best to steer their way away from that persuasion and into their message, which sometimes it works, and sometimes they just get caught off guard like we hear Sanders actually did here. Now, in this next clip here, we're going to be hearing um, a second question that's now asked, and they started off this debate basically asking certain Candidate, certain questions, you know, just like one for each candidate. And in this next part, they're going to be asking a question of Joe Biden. And it was very interesting talking about the standard of living and how Biden is really trying to carve out this very intermediate stance as a moderate and how he keeps getting pushed around one way or the other with regard to that stance. It's like, you know, where exactly can he stand? So let's take a listen to this one. It's a pretty short clip, but it's very illustrative.
4: uh, Vice President Biden, Senator Sanders, as you know, has been calling for a revolution recently in remarks to a group of wealthy donors. As you were speaking about the problem of income inequality in this country, you said we shouldn't, quote, demonize the rich. You said nobody has to be punished. No one's standard of living would change. Nothing would fundamentally change. What did you mean by that?
3: What I meant by that is, look, Donald Trump thinks Wall Street built America ordinary middle-class Americans build America. My dad used to have an expression. He said, Joe, a job is about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's being able to look your kid in the eye and say everything's going to be okay. Too many people who are in the middle class and poor have had the bottom fall out under this proposal. What I'm saying is that we've got to be straightforward. We have to make sure we understand that to return dignity to the middle class, they have to have insurance that is covered and they can afford it. They have to make sure that we're in a situation where there's continuing education and they're able to pay for it. And they have to make sure that they're able to breathe air that is, is, is clean and they, they have water that they can drink. Look. Donald Trump has put us in a horrible situation. We do have enormous income inequality. And the one thing I agree on is we can make massive cuts in the $1.6 trillion in tax loopholes out there, and I would be going about eliminating
4: Donald Trump's tax cuts for the wealthy. Vice President Biden, thank you.
0: Yeah, so here we can hear Vice President Biden going back to his down-home roots and sort of taking a you know, quote from his father talking about what a job is all about. And this is a line that he's actually used a lot. He's used this in the previous presidential debates um, back when he was running in uh, 2008 and 2012. And, you know, it's a really, it's a great line. Who knows if his dad actually said any of that, but it's a sort of a way for him to inject that sort of middle-class Joe sort of mentality into it and really... Bring back that image of Joe Biden as that, you know, middle class Joe who rides the train to work every day, even when his work is the White House um, or or Congress. It's really uh, it's really great how he does that. And and I think it it, uh, you know, starts him off in a real strong point here at the beginning of the debate.
2: So, you know, we hear here how the moderators are starting to frame this idea and frame this debate. So we hear Savannah Guthrie here talking about this idea of not demonizing the rich. And how no one's standard of living has to change, nobody has to be punished, nothing would fundamentally change. This is what she quotes of Biden having said. And think about what she's trying to do here with this question. She's trying to push him into a particular kind of corner where he has to now justify himself against the philosophy of someone like Bernie Sanders, who is saying, you know, the top 1% or, you know, the top three people versus that bottom 50%. And she's trying to force this confrontation between Biden and Sanders versus saying that they're all the same. So it's really interesting how Biden basically, again, here's the spin. Here it comes by that. And he says, what I meant by that is look. And the phrase look for Joe Biden, you're going to keep hearing this. Now that you've heard it, you're going to keep hearing it. What I meant by this is look. And then he starts to go into how... Um, you know, we want for everyone to have the same rights. And then he goes into this phrase by his dad and his dad has told him this phrase about how a job is about dignity. It's about respect. So now he starts to bring in this idea of values. Now, once he has gone into that realm, everything that he says after that point now gets influenced by what he had said at the beginning. So he brings it into, this is about dignity and respect. That's what a job really is. And so everything he says after that point then flows from that. And then he says, well, what I'm saying is we've got to be this. We have to make sure we understand that, that people have to this. And this is language that indicates necessity. So must, should, have to, got to. And when a person uses language that is using necessity – What they're saying here is is that they're utilizing pain as a motivator, right? Something they're moving away from. I have to do this. So there's some external necessity to be able to do that. And then he brings in a little bit of that possibility. They're able to afford it. They're able to pay for it. They're able to have the clean air and the clean water. But if you're paying attention, what does all of this have to do with the economic question that he's being asked? It has absolutely nothing to do with it. And then he says, look, again, And then after he says, look, he starts talking about Donald Trump. So this is this idea of transitional phrases of what are the phrases that a candidate is going to repeatedly say. And we're going to be pointing out a couple of them here within this episode. There are some phrases that Joe Biden continues to say. There are some phrases that Kamala Harris has a bunch of them in which she says. And as we start to identify these transitional phrases, it's going to give you that point, that moment in time where... Now the candidate is switching. They're beginning that spend. They're beginning to change topic from what they didn't want to answer to what they do want to answer. And with Joe Biden for this, it was right at the beginning. What I mean by that is, look. So in this next clip, um, we're going to be listening to some uh, ideas that were proposed to Senator Harris about student loans and free college health care. And we're going to hear something, and this was definitely prepared by her, but it was really interesting how she, de- how she did this because she basically went meta, meaning above or about the whole question, and reflected upon it in order to question the entire question. So let's take a listen to this um, clip where we're going to be hearing from Senator Harris.
4: Senator Harris. There's a lot of talk in this primary about new government benefits, such as student loan cancellation, free college, health care, and more. Do you think that Democrats have a responsibility to explain how they will pay for every proposal they make along those lines?
6: Well, let me tell you something. I I hear that question, but where was that question when the Republicans and Donald Trump passed a tax bill that benefits the top 1% and the biggest corporations in this country? contributing at least a $1 trillion to the debt of America, which middle-class families will pay for one way or another. Working families need support and need to be lifted up. And frankly, this economy is not working for working People. For too long, the rules have been written in the favor of the people who have the most and not in favor of the people who work the most, which is why I am proposing that we change the tax code so for every family that is making less than $100,000 a year, they will receive a tax credit that they can collect at $500 a month, which will make all the difference between those families being able to get through the end of the month with dignity and with support or not. And on day one, I will repeal that tax bill that benefits the top 1% and the biggest corporations of America.
2: So here we hear another transitional phrase from Kamala Harris is that she hears this question. And, you know, first of all, let's just break down the question, right? So the question is, again, from Savannah Guthrie, there have been, there's been a lot of talk about student loan benefits, free college health care. Do you think Democrats have a responsibility to explain how they will pay for every proposal they make along those lines. So she's framing it in terms of responsibility and having to explain in dollars and cents terms. And this is a really tough question to answer because if you say yes, then you've just committed to something that you're later on going to have to explain or those in your party are going to have to explain Give something, gives everyone else something to attack you on. If you say no, then you look tremendously bad because it's like, oh, you're not taking responsibility. So there's a tremendous amount of presupposition and framing in that question that the moderator is asking. And Harris, of course, doesn't want to answer this. So we hear here a a transitional phrase from Kamala Harris, and she says, well, let me tell you something. So from here on, every time you hear Kamala Harris say, well, let me tell you something, She's beginning her process of spinning. She said, I hear that question, but... And then she says, where was that question when the Republicans and Donald Trump passed the tax bill that benefits only the top 1%? Everyone begins to applaud because it was a really good reply. Okay, Perhaps not an honest reply in the spirit of the question, but it was very good persuasively because what she did was she just chunked up above all of what was just said. And she said, well, that's just not a good question, right? That's not the question we need to be asking. And of course, you know, where was that question when the Republicans and Donald Trump passed the tax bill? Well, the answer, of course, is that this question was not on the debate stage because we weren't then interviewing primary candidates for the 2020 election like that. The what, how Kamala Harris responds has nothing to do with the question. Where was it? Well, it wasn't there because it wasn't relevant. Um, but then notice how as she does this, there's also kind of this implied threat of, well, if you if you keep asking me questions like that, I'm going to keep, you know, coming back to you as the moderators and saying, hey, you're just you know, you're not saying the correct thing to me. And so I'm going to you know, twist it into what I want to answer.
0: Yes. Yeah, so going back to the beginning, what Taylor said about the question framing from the moderators right there, what they're doing is in one aspect trying to pit Bernie Sanders against Kamala Harris by asking, you know, do Democrats have a responsibility to explain how they're going to pay for you know, all of these policies? You know, that's an attack on a lot of the more progressive wing of the Democratic Party who are promising a lot of policies and not necessarily explaining how they're going to be paid for. Um, so, right now that's just red meat that's bait that's teeing up a question for Harris to go after Bernie and some of the others. I don't exactly know what the moderator's thought process was behind that. Maybe they had some you know discussions in back rooms about you know what are the dynamics, which candidates would be most likely to attack the other ones and then develop their questions in in sort of a fashion that would give them fodder. Um, to sort of see that that sort of uh, the pit fight. But uh, that's certainly not what they got in this question, in, in the answer from Kamala Harris, who went after the Republicans, reframed that whole thing, questioned the very premise of the question um, and came out, you know, very strong with never actually like fully explaining um it, the The answer and how everything's going to be paid for it, but but really you know brought it again back to all of those working class issues and the, the imagery around um, you know uh, regular quote unquote people trying to make ends meet. And so that's really a sort of the interesting way that the framing of the question um, was so multifaceted
2: there. Uh, and really fascinating. Now, I want to break this down even a little bit further to later on in that clip and some of the language that Kamala Harris is using. And it's very clear that she has been working on her, her rhetorical devices. And we hear this phrase from her where she says, working families need support and need to need to be lifted up. And frankly, this economy is not working for working people. So it's repetition It's alliteration. And it's something called antimaria. And what that is, is it's a rhetorical device that repurposes a word in a different part of speech. So it's using one part of speech as another part of speech, like using a noun as if it were a verb. And one example of antimaria is a nominalization, which we've talked about before. And so as you're doing that, it unlocks the essence of the word, but it is a persuasive device. And I think most people hearing that will realize that it is, it is persuasive. They might not know how much on purpose that it is. They might just say, well, Kamala Harris just sounds good. But as she says, this economy is not working for working people, You know, do you realize she's using the word working in two different ways there? And then later on, she says, the rules were written for the people who have the most, not for those who work the most. And again, another little tricky device being able to change it from one, you know, to the other type of person. So this is something to, to notice here within these candidates. I would say throughout this debate, there's no question that Kamala Harris was the one using the most rhetorical devices and rhetorical language, you know, in this way.
0: And so now in the next section, you're going to hear Eric Swalwell, who's no longer in the race go after biden um sort of on a generational issue and it's really interesting to see the ways that the other candidates try to dogpile on this like there's a race to like oh no no i'm i'm older i'm younger and uh it's it's going to be really interesting to see how they all sort of uh pile in on this question um as soon as uh, they smell blood uh with swalwell attacking (laughs) biden here so take a listen
2: Okay, Uh, Congressman Swalwell, I want to talk a little bit about what uh, Mr. Yang is talking about. And you just actually mentioned it. Many Americans are worried that things like self-driving cars, robots, drones, artificial intelligence will cost them their jobs. What would you do to help people get the skills they need to adapt to this new world? We
1: must always be a country where technology creates more jobs than it displaces. And I've seen the anxiety across America where the manufacturing floors go from 1,000 to 100 to one. So we have to modernize our schools, value the teachers who prepare our kids, wipe the student debt from any teacher that goes into a community that needs it, invest in America's communities, especially where places where the best exports are people who move away to get skills. But Jose, I was six years old when a presidential candidate came to the California Democratic Convention and said, it's time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans. That candidate was then Senator Joe Biden. Joe Biden was right when he said it was time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans 32 years ago. He's still right today. If we're going to solve the issues of automation, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issues of climate chaos, pass the torch. If we're going to solve the issue of student loan debt, pass the torch. If we're going to end gun violence for families who are fearful of sending their kids to school, pass the torch. Vice President, would you like to
3: sing a torch song? I (laughs) would. I'm still holding on to that torch. I want to make it clear to you, look, the fact of the matter is what we have to do is make sure that everybody is prepared better to go on to educate for an education. The fact is that that's why I propose us focusing on schools that are in distress. That's why I think we should triple the amount of money we spend for Title I schools. That's why I think we should have universal pre-K. That's why I think every single person who graduates from high school, 65 out of 100 now need something beyond high school. And we should provide for them to be able to get that education. That's why there should be free community college, cutting in half the cost of college. That's why we should be in a position where we do not have anyone have to pay back a student debt when they get out, they're making less than $25,000 a year. Their debt that is frozen. No interest payment until they get beyond that. We can't put people in a position where they aren't able to go on and move on. And so, folks, there's a lot we can do, but we have to make continuing education available for everyone so that everyone can compete in the 21st century. We're not doing that now. Senator Sanders, oh, oh, oh.
7: as the youngest guy on the stage, I feel like I probably ought to contribute of, to the generation. Part of I'm Joe's before, generation. I'm all before, for part of Joe's before, generation. Okay. Before, Let me respond.
8: Before we move the on. The if
7: I may
5: say, is like not generational. The what issue is generational. who, who has the guts, guts to take on Wall Street, to take on the fossil fuel industry, to take on the big money interests who have unbelievable influence over the economic and political life of this country. That's not the Senator Harris, Marianne Senator Hillary Harris, I'm
2: so sorry. We will let all of issues. you speak. Senator Harris, Senator
0: please, we will
2: th- let th- you all speak. Th- Senator Harris. You can't afford to wait for evolution on these issues.
6: Hey, guys, you know what? America does not want to witness a food fight. They want to know how we're going to put food on their table. The issue that is at play in America today, and we've all been traveling around the country, I certainly have. I'm meeting people who are working two and three jobs. You know, this president walks around talking about and flouting his great economy, right? My great economy, my great economy. You ask him, Well, how are you measuring this greatness of this economy of yours? And he talks about the stock market. Well, that's fine if you own stocks. So many families in America do not. You ask them, how are you measuring the greatness of this economy of yours? And they point to the jobless numbers and the unemployment numbers. Well, yeah, people in America are working. They're working two and three jobs. So when we talk about jobs, let's be really clear. In our America, no one should have to work more than one job to have a roof over their head and food on the table. Thank you very much.
0: So in this clip, we hear Swalwell, again, uh, out there attacking Biden, really. What he does here is he talks about how, you know, he was six when Biden came to talk to his school about passing the torch to a new generation. And so, you know, it sort of dates him to where he was just a child when Joe Biden was, you know, an adult and already, you know, uh, serving in government. And so... What happens here is it gives you know tease Joe Biden up because they then ask him to respond and I don't know if this was Joe trying to you know take that and you know uh, twist it around and turn it into something else but he says I'm still holding on to that torch. Um, and you know, that sort of that imagery right there, taking the imagery from Swalwell and saying, no, 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 I'm still fighting for, you know, the, you know, the underprivileged and, you know, the new generation and all of that. I'm still fighting for these issues. I don't know if it really landed well, because it's sort of like, no, no, no. Uh, I said, I'm going to hand the torch down, but I'm actually keeping it and I'm going to, you're going to have to pry it for my cold dead hands. <laughs> uh, you know, I, it could be interpreted both ways so I can sort of see how two different audiences could accept two different meanings from that. But either way, like what was he supposed to say to that? that is part of the other question. Um, and then he goes back into his, you know, uh, policy speech where he's listing off all of his accomplishments. And this is sort of what Joe Biden does. When he's given a chance to talk as he lists off all of his accomplishments and then talks about, you know, his policies. But they're always in like big list fashions. And uh, I think that that's when he sort of loses the audience and cannot continue to um, speak past his time in the way that other uh, candidates do. Um, A lot of candidates go into a storytelling mode and start telling these, you know, prolonged stories. Um, that, you know, the moderators tend not to interrupt. But what happens here is when Biden is listing off these sort of things, he's now really bound by the time limits and he's, he's pretty respectful mm. about stopping himself. But, you know, the the moderators will stop him and he resigns himself because, you know, it's easy to stop one of those and not the others.
2: Right. He doesn't have a good story prepared for that because Swalwell already kind of took that storytelling spot. And, you know, you got to wonder what Swalwell's motivation is for all of this. Like, it's not like he didn't know that coming into this debate that he was going to drop out of the debate just a few weeks later obviously he knew that was likely to happen his polling numbers didn't change um he can point to it and say well i didn't really get that much traction on the debate but i he knew that he wasn't going to get traction so i don't know what the what the point is there of how he was doing it so we do hear that that metaphor of the torch you know being being put on there and then they kind of fight to say well you know, who's younger, who's, just like Alex said earlier, right? Who's younger, who's older? You know, Buttigieg is the youngest person on the stage, and Sanders wants to talk about Joe's generation. And then, as soon as Bernie has the mic there, as soon as he's able to do it, he just keeps saying, the issue is not generational. It's who has the guts to take (laughs) on. And then he goes back into his top 1% speech. Who has the guts to take on the Wall Street and the fossil fuel industry and blah, blah, blah. You know, and so how does he frame himself, right? Sanders is the guy who has the guts that's playing into his image, right? And it's not generational because that wouldn't play into his image if it were generational because, you know, Sanders and Biden are the are the older guys, there up on the stage. And then we hear Kamala Harris coming in And she comes in with this just really kind of corny, um, cheap shot, you know, joke. America doesn't want to witness a food fight. They want us to put food on their table. And, you know, I'm sure she had this queued up and it probably sounded really good when they were, you know, thinking of things to say during the debate. But the moment in which she chooses to do it, it's just slightly off, right? It's slightly off tempo. It's not exactly you know, landing there, you know, but people clap anyway. And Joe Biden kind of gives her the thumb up like, oh, that was a really, you know, cute little shot that you did there. And then she says, and here's another one of Kamala Harris's transition phrases. She says, on that point, on what point? She just says, on that point, on that point. And you'll hear her keep saying this. If you listen back, you know, or forward as she continues to do things through some of what Kamala Harris has said or is saying, she will say this repeatedly. She'll say something. she will say on that point. And she says it so softly that we start to say, well, you know, maybe she actually, you know, believes some of this. And then she talks about something, which I thought was a little bit dishonest in the way in which she frames this. And, How she frames it is she says, well, the president talks about his great economy. He talks about the stock market. Well, that's fine if you own stocks. He talks about the jobless numbers and unemployment. Well, that's fine if you're not working two and three jobs. And it's like, is she trying to say that the economy is not good because you don't, if you don't own stocks, then the stock market doesn't reflect the economy. Like that's just completely untrue. And I'm sure that she knows that. But remember what she's doing is she's appealing not to the logical part of a person. She's appealing to the emotions. And it does sound it does sound very realistic as she goes into that. You know, he talks about the stock market. That's fine if you own stocks. Not exactly true when you actually delve into it, though. Now, in this next clip, they're going to be talking about Medicare for all and private insurance. And what they do is they ask the question, of who here as a show of hands would abolish private insurance in favor of a government run plan. Everyone who's in favor who would do that, raise your hands. And only Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris's hands go up. So let's listen to this clip here. It starts with uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and then Pete Buttigieg comes in a little bit later to really uh, twist this in a really interesting way. So let's take a listen to this one.
1: We're going to do it again now. Many people watching at home have health insurance of their employer. Who here would abolish their private health insurance in favor of a government-run plan? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Christian Gill- Gillibrand, Senator can I, can Gillibrand.
8: I, yeah, so No, it's my turn. So um, this is a very important issue. So the plan that Senator Sanders and I and others support, Medicare for All, is how you get to single payer. But it has a buy-in transition period, which is really important. In 2005, when I ran for Congress in a two-to-one Republican district, I actually ran on Medicare for All. And I won that two-to-one Republican district twice. And the way I formulated it was simple. Anyone who doesn't have access to insurance they like, they could buy in at a percentage of income they could afford. So that's what we put into the transition period for um, our Medicare for All plan. I believe we need to get to universal health care as a right, not a privilege, to single payer. The quickest way you get there is you create competition with the insurers. God bless the insurers, if they wanna compete, they can certainly try. But they've never put people over their profits and I doubt they ever will. So what will happen is people will choose Medicare, you will transition, we will get to Medicare for All, and then your step to single payer is so short, I would make it an earned benefit, just like Social Security, so that you buy in your whole life, it is right. always there for you, and it's permanent and it's
1: universal. Senator, your time is up. I want to put that same question to uh, Mayor Buttigieg. Yeah,
7: we've taught, look, everybody who says Medicare for All, every person in politics who allows that phrase to escape their lips, has a responsibility to explain how you're actually supposed to get from here to there. Now here's how I would do it. It's very similar. I would call it Medicare for all who want it. You take something like Medicare, a flavor of that, you make it available on the exchanges, people can buy in, and then if people like us are right, that that will be not only a more inclusive plan, a more efficient plan than any of the corporate answers out there, then it will be a very natural glide path to the single-payer environment. But let's remember, even in countries that have outright socialized medicine, like England, even there, there's still a private sector. That's fine. It's just that for our primary care, we can't be relying on the tender mercies of the corporate system. This one's very personal for me. I started out this year dealing with the terminal illness of my father. I make decisions for a living. And nothing could have prepared me for the kind of decisions our family faced. But the thing we had going for us was that we never had to make those decisions based on whether it was going to bankrupt our family because of Medicare. And I want every right, family to have that same freedom to do what is medically right—not live in
1: fear. Your time is complete, now. Vice President Biden. I want to put the question to you. You were an arch- one of the architects of Obamacare. So where do we go from here?
3: Look, this is uh, very personal to me. Uh, when. Uh, my wife and daughter were killed in an automobile accident. My two boys were really very badly injured. I couldn't imagine what it would be like if I had not had adequate health care available immediately. And then when my son came home from Iraq after a year, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and uh, he was given months to live. I can't fathom what would have happened if, in fact, they said, by the way, the last six months of your life, you're on your own. We're cutting off. You've used up your time. The fact of the matter is that the quickest, fastest way to do it is build on Obamacare, to build on what we did, and and secondly, secondly, to make sure that everyone does have an option. Everyone, whether they have private insurance, employer insurance, or or no insurance, they, in fact, could buy in in the exchange to a Medicare-like plan. And the way to do that, we can do it quickly. Look, urgency matters. There's people right now facing what I faced. And what we faced without any of the help I had, we must move now. I'm against any Democrat right. who opposes, Biden, to take Congress. down Obamacare and any Republican who wants to get rid of Obama. Let me Let me turn to Still Senator on. Sanders.
2: So at the beginning of this clip, we hear Senator Gillibrand talk about how she developed a plan with Bernie Sanders to support Medicare for All. And so notice how she didn't raise her hand. Again, only Sanders and Harris, only their hands went up. But because she didn't raise her hand then... Gillibrand was able to speak and then the first thing she says is this is what Bernie Sanders and I supported and this is how you get to single payer and then she went into her history of winning in that two to one uh, Republican district and some of the details of her plan uh, which was kind of interesting and then we heard Pete Buttigieg and he comes in and he does it with this really interesting cadence where he says What I think is that everybody who says Medicare for all, every person in politics who allows that phrase to escape their lips has a responsibility to explain how you're actually going to get from here to there. And as he says this, you know, there's so many things going on right at that phrase, and he gets applause for this phrase. And as he says this, there's so many things that are happening on this. First of all, it's similar to that phrasing of the moderator earlier, right? The responsibility to explain something. And he sets up this contextual anchor where every time now a person hears that, hears someone saying Medicare for all, now they have to think about it in the way that Buttigieg has just presented here, which is, well, if they say that and they don't explain to you how we're going to get from here to there, that's the person who is not fulfilling their responsibility. And the third thing I want you to notice about this is his cadence in saying it. And the way in which he says it is, he says, everybody who says Medicare for all, every person in politics, now person in politics, that's three words, right? Person in politics who, and then he says, allows that phrase. So now it's three words again. And then he says to escape their lips. So it's three more words. So person in politics who allows that phrase to escape their lips, has a responsibility to explain. You hear how he's doing this? He's able to take three words at a time and really emphasize those words to create that cadence that goes then into the mind. So when he says it in that way, then people just naturally, you know, they go into that that place, they go into that calmness, and then he gets the applause. And right after he gets the applause, then he links it now to his plan. I would call it Medicare for all who want it. So it's not for all, it's all who want it. And it's, of course, that's not what he's going to call it. He's not going to call it Medicare for all who want it. But it is very interesting because how is it that someone is going to argue against, well, I don't want that. It's really going to be hard to actually move up against that or say, hey, no, we don't want to give people what they actually want.
0: Yeah, so we sort of see the the series of events that take place in this clip. We've got Gillibrand, who is you know answers it in a very matter of fact way, and you know talks about how you know this is how she's going to get it done, and um, you know talks about how she can actually implement it um, because she's been able to win in a two to one Republican district. Then we've got Buttigieg. He likes to go into this you know metaphorical framing and talking about you know words escaping lips and you know everybody has to has that responsibility to explain it um, he's really um, doing a lot of uh, you know metaphorical and uh, you know mental reframing of the issue but then you've got Biden who takes that to an even higher level by talking about his life experience and you know all of the emotional situations that he's had um, and by the way you know buddha judge says you know this is very personal to me and then biden says starts off with this is very personal to me so he sort of repeats that uh, i don't know if he actually heard that buddha judge said it or if he was deliberately sort of trying to hijack the personal moment of this issue so that he could talk about you know his uh you know personal tragedy and how that col- colors his Way of thinking about healthcare. Um, he then goes on to talking about Obamacare and talking about how he's against any Democrat who you know wants to dismantle Obamacare, which is code for redoing the entire healthcare system, is dismantling Obamacare. So anyone who doesn't want to continue and perpetuate and improve upon Obamacare, he's against. Um, I don't know if that really came across either. He didn't have enough time to really explain it and, and didn't really do a good enough job trying to explain that that's what he meant, that he is against all of these other Democrats who want to take apart Obamacare and rebuild Medicare for all and come up with new healthcare care uh, systems, um, as opposed to what he's proposing, which is to you know build upon and continue with Obamacare. Um, And so, um, yeah, so it's just really interesting to see that escalation from Gillibrand to Buttigieg to Biden in sort of the personal nature of this and, you know, how much they care about the issue. And then also the sort of reframing that goes on with Buttigieg, as Taylor um, explained uh, in great detail about how he was able to reframe that entire issue. And then we get to Biden who says, throw everything everyone else is saying out the window. We need to build upon
2: and improve Obamacare. Now, in this next clip, we're going to hear the moderators ask Pete Buttigieg about the racial issue in his home where he's a mayor. And we're going to hear how he talks about that and the much quoted moment between Kamala Harris and Joe Biden as Harris really challenges Biden's view on some of his past policy points. We are going to begin this hour uh, with Mayor Buttigieg.
1: Uh, In the last five years, civil rights activists in our country have led a national debate over race and the criminal justice system. Your community of South Bend, Indiana, has recently been in uproar over an officer-involved shooting. The police force in South Bend is now 6% black, in a city that is 26% black. Why has that not improved over your two terms as mayor?
7: Because I couldn't get it done. My community is in anguish right now because of an officer-involved shooting, a black man, Eric Logan, killed by a white officer. And I'm not allowed to take sides until the investigation comes back. The officer said he was attacked with a knife, but he didn't have his body camera on. It's a mess and we're hurting. And I could walk you through all of the things that we have done as a community, all of the steps that we took from bias training to de-escalation, but it didn't save the life of Eric Logan. And when I look into his mother's eyes, I have to face the fact that nothing that I say will bring him back. This is an issue that is facing our community and so many communities around the country. And until we move policing out from the shadow of systemic racism, whatever this particular incident teaches us, we will be left with the bigger problem of the fact that there's a wall of mistrust put up one racist act at a time, not just from what's happened in the past, but from what's happening around the country in the present it threatens the well-being of every community and i am determined to bring about a day when a white person driving a vehicle and a black person driving a vehicle when they see a police officer approaching feels the exact same Ma'am. thing a feeling not of fear but of safety i am determined to bring time. that day about thank you mr, thank you, mr. if i could, mr. If I
3: could mr. ask what, one just because I think
1: Governor I'll give you 30 seconds
3: I think that uh, the question they're asking in South Bend I think in cities across the country is why has it taken so long uh, we had a shooting when I first became mayor ten years before Ferguson and the community came together and we created an office of the independent monitor a civilian oversight Commission we diversified the police force in two years we actually did de-escalation training I think the real question that America should be asking is why five years after Ferguson every city doesn't have this level of police accountability.
5: Governor Hickenlooper, thank we, you. I've got to respond
7: to that. Look, we've taken so many steps toward police accountability that, you know, the FOP just denounced me for too much accountability. We're obviously not
1: there yet. And if, I accept the responsibility the camera, for that because I'm that in charge. If the policy, you should fire the chief.
7: So under Indiana law, this will be investigated, and there will be accountability
1: for the officer involved. But you're the mayor. You should fire the chief if that's the policy and someone died.
6: All of these issues are extremely important, but they are specifics, they are symptoms, and the underlying cause has to do with deep, deep, deep realms of racial injustice, both in our criminal justice system and in our economic system. And the Democratic Party should be on the side of reparations for slavery for this very reason. I do not believe I do not believe that the average American is a racist but the average American is woefully undereducated about the history of race in the United States. Ms. I I Williamson, like thank you very much.
2: Vice
1: President, President Biden, I'm going we're, gonna to on, we're on
6: going to get to you. Hang on. We're going to get The dog I would well, like to speak I, I, on the issue of race. Senator Harris, and so I to, what Senator I will Harris, say if I could, is if that I, I could agree, preface agree. this we will give you 30 seconds. Of this, we're going to come back to you on, on this again in just a moment. Go for 30 seconds. Okay. So on the issue of race, I couldn't agree more that this is an issue that is still not being talked about truthfully and honestly. I, there is not a black man I know, be he a relative, a friend or a coworker, who has not been the subject of some form of profiling or discrimination. Growing up, my sister and I had to deal with the neighbor who told us her parents couldn't play with us because, she, because we were black. And I will say also that, that in this campaign, we've also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden, um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. Mm-hmm. But I also believe, and it's personal, and it, I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. So I will tell you that on this subject, it cannot be an intellectual debate among Democrats. We have to take it seriously. We have to act swiftly. As Attorney General of California, I was very proud to put in place a a requirement that all my special agents would wear body cameras and keep those cameras on. Senator Harris, thank you. Vice President Biden,
5: you have been invoked. We are going to give you a chance to respond. Vice President
4: Biden.
3: Mischaracterized My position across the board. I did not praise racists. That is not true. Number one. Number two. If we want to have this campaign litigated on who supports civil rights and whether I did or not, I'm happy to do that. I was a public defender. I didn't become a prosecutor. I came out. And I left a good law firm to become a public defender. When in fact, when in fact, when in fact, my city was in flames because of the, the uh, assassination of Dr. King. Number one. Now, number two, as the U.S., as, excuse me, as the uh, uh, Vice President of the United States, I work with a man who, in fact, we worked very hard to see to it we dealt with these issues in a major, major way. The fact is that in terms of busing, the busing, I never, you would have been able to go to school the same exact way because it was a local decision made by your city council. That's fine. That's one of the things I argued for, that we should not be, we should be breaking down these lines. But so the bottom line here is, look, everything I've done in my career, I ran because of civil rights. I continue to think we have to make fundamental changes in civil rights. And those civil rights, by the way, include not just only African-Americans, but the LGBT community. But but,
6: Vice President Biden, do you agree today? Do you agree today? that you were wrong to oppose busing in America then.
3: Do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education.
6: That's why we need to pass the ERA because That's there are moments in history where states fail to preserve the civil rights of I all people. I've
1: supported the okay, ERA from the very beginning. Thirty seconds, because I want to bring know. other people i, report, into this. I supported I the ERA from
3: the very beginning. I'm the guy that extended the Voting Rights Act for 25 years. We got to the place where we got 98 out of 98 votes in the United States Senate doing it. I've also argued very strongly that we, in fact, deal with the notion of denying people access to the ballot box. I agree that everybody wants they in fact. Anyway, my time's up. I'm sorry. Thank you, Vice President.
0: Wow. So here we have the super contentious moment that all the press has been covering. We've got, you know, uh, starting with just Pete Buttigieg, who is being asked a very pointed question about the problems in South Bend, Indiana. And, you know, Pete lays it all out and says, you know, it's because I couldn't get it done. And uh, this is sort of his way of, you know, throwing up his hands and, you know, not taking the bait right there and sort of allowing, um, you know, what what are you supposed to say to that? Nobody can really attack him after that, even though they do. Um, we hear him go into this uh, framing of, you know, I'm not allowed to take sides because there is an ongoing in. in- investigation, presumably, but that's not the phrasing that he uses really right there is that I'm not allowed to take sides. He can take sides. He can say whatever he wants. He's running for president of the United States. He can take whatever side he wants. Um, but it's a way for him to sort of deflect from actually, you know, answering the question more directly or to deal with any you know, responsibility right there. And then it inoculates himself from other attacks as they do Um, They attack him on how come he's not making any uh, decisions or taking any executive action. He goes back to over and over again, I'm not allowed to take sides. Um, Then he, you know, sort of Uh, makes this pivot over to the more national issues and, you know, starts talking about those and the greater issue of, you know, race and policing as opposed to actually answering the question again um, and going into, you know, the issues that are, that are happening locally. He's trying to broaden this out. So now he's talking on something that, you know, isn't uh, critical of his own performance And then I really like this line that he uses right here where he says, you know, I could walk you through all the things that I've done. And he lists like one or two of them. um, But none of that would make any difference. And what he's doing here is he's avoiding talking about how he's actually addressed this issue. Um, He lists like one or two things. But then says that it's inappropriate for me to talk about any more because it's not going to make a difference. So that's also a way of him inoculating himself from attacks. Nobody can now attack him on, you know, how come you didn't do more? How come you didn't do more? You know, his answer to it all is none of it really matters because whatever I say here doesn't make it any better. Um, which is, you know, a a
2: fantastic way of him sort of parrying attacks before they come. Yeah. And then we hear Eric Swalwell come in here at the end. And you just have to wonder, okay, what exactly is Swalwell's motivation? Again, it's almost as though Swalwell, you know, went to all of his Democratic friends and said, hey, who do we want to, you know, attack? Who do we want to bring down a peg? Um, And who do we want to prosper? Because I'm offering up my, you know, attack slot here, you know, pretty freely. And then Swalwell, you know, goes, well, if there's something wrong, you fire the chief. And, you know, what is it exactly that, you know, Buttigieg says is supposed to say to that? And he just says, well, per Indiana law. And he goes into kind of procedural thing. And then Swalwell just repeats himself as though, well, you're just not doing, you know, enough here, you know, with this. Um, And so we hear this piling on, you know, that's happening of Buttigieg. But again, the moderators set it up that way, right? It was set up to be a very, very tough question for him to answer. And then it then gave the perfect segue then for Kamala Harris to talk about her challenges with it. And she, you know, at first just says, you know, I'd like to speak on this issue. And she kind of forces the moderator's hand here. It's like, no, I'm up here. I'm going to speak about this and then she really starts to then go after, you know, Joe Biden. We hear her talking about how, you know, this can't be an intellectual debate. Well, then, you know, what kind of debate then, you know, does it does it lead, you know, to there and um, you know, brings it down then to her personal experience. Yeah, she sort of had this all prepared here, right? Is that like going into it, she's the
0: only person of color on the stage. And she knew that A, either the moderators would direct a question about race to her right out the gate or at some point during the debate. Or B, what happened here is it had gone pretty far into the debate without anybody ever asking her a race question. So she butts in with, as the only person of color on the stage, I would like to speak on the issue of race. She does like this weird little pause right there. And then the moderators, you know, just... It's MSNBC. So they're like, "Okay, go ahead. And everybody else is silenced. She's got the stage and she just pauses there as if almost like a finally. Yeah, like I just conquered this moment, sort of uh, like now it's my turn, sort of pause right there. And she gives a very deliberate look on her face, too, as she's doing that right there. Like, are you done? And then she launches into uh, something that was very prepared of hers. Where she takes that, all of the the reframing that Taylor talked about, but then makes it very personal by first inoculating herself and and prefacing uh, her attack on Joe Biden as, you know, I don't believe that you're racist, but. And then she launches into attacks on, you know, some of his previous statements about working with segregationists. And so, you know, this is this is an interesting line of attack right here, because I think that nobody was expecting it. Um, In hindsight, people should have expected it because, you know, Kamala Harris is is certainly going to have a strong showing with uh, minorities and the African-American vote. But then her support is kind of capped. Um, to a certain extent there. And so strategically, her campaign is probably looking at, you know, where can she possibly grow and where can she possibly gain other supporters? And it's from Joe Biden and, uh, you know, the the more moderate um, and and uh, white wing of the Democratic Party. And so that's the way that she's going to be able to to um, grow her base of supporters so she's going to attack him and strengthen her base and try and pick off some of his supporters and, and weaken him, um, which is just a, it, it seemed like a really um, tactful strategy. So she launches into that attack by framing it as as, you know, there's this little girl in California um, who was bust, and that little girl was me and she gets a round of applause. She is clearly a very well prepared um, uh critique right there and statement but you know what joe biden really played into it because he could have just let that go like he could have let all of that go the the first time um when she attacked him on segregationists it was over the moderators were ready to move on but then he went in and tried to defend his himself and then she was able to butt in and attack him even further with that line about her on the bus and now she's got the momentum. She's got people applauding for her. And now he's defending himself. And so he's able to get in a couple of good points. Um, I like the moment where he was said that, you know, instead of becoming a public defender, like he became a public defender instead of becoming a prosecutor, um, which gained him some applause um, and was really a critique that he could have ran with further because, you know, Kamala Harris was a prosecutor and put a lot of people of color behind bars um, for a lot of things that her base probably wouldn't be very happy about. But Joe cut that line off and then went back on, you know, in his list fashion of listing off all the things that he's done. So he's using that, that list of facts. And Kamala is really hammering over and over again, interrupting him to, you know, talk about the emotion and the feelings of the situation um, and how all of this should happen and almost eggs him into this, uh, this snap where he says, you know, because your city council made that decision, um, he's gotten sort of pestered and, and angry and lashes out in his vocal inflection about why the busing occurred. So in this moment, I kind of see two, two ways of viewing that. Um, first, it could be seen as, as sort of a, a weak response because, you know, he's getting angry um, at, at uh, a woman of color on stage um, and, you know, that can seem a little bit of uh, off-putting to a lot of Americans. Um, on the other side, the, um, the incredulity that he has, like, that appears genuine that he's being attacked on these issues, that he's been, you know, strong on his entire life, that, that he believes he's fought for his entire life. I think, you know, a lot of the audience can also see the other side where j- they see that genuine reaction from Joe Biden as if like you're actually criticizing me on these issues. Um, and, you know, because that that genuine nature of his reaction came out in that way, I think that really um, and I think we can look at a lot of the the polling that came out of the debate right there is is, um, you know, yeah, Joe Biden lost a lot of um, supporters in that debate, but it was kind of 50 50. Like he also picked up a lot of people who were supporting other candidates previously Um, so, you know, it was a net loss for him, but he still picked up a lot of people. And uh, I sort of think that that's sort of lost in a lot of the analysis on this debate is that he was able to, um, he wasn't hemorrhaging voters. Um, he did pick up some, but, you know, at the same time, you know, overall it was a poor performance and he lost some.
2: Yeah. It's so interesting to notice the various different levels that a question is asked, you know, how the moderators frame it. What the subtext is of the question, what the all of the linguistic devices and the vocal tone and the body language and the posture and everything that happens around something around a particular question or a response that's happening within the candidate and then how that then influences how all the words are being perceived.
0: Well, I think that's about all the time we've got for today. Check out our website at SubliminallyCorrect.com. You can head over to our Twitter at SubliminalPod or even to our Facebook page. Um, If you really love the show and you want to keep us on the air, uh, go to our Patreon and you can support us for as little as buying us a cup of coffee just to, you know, keep us here, keep us recording, um, even all the way up to paying some of our server costs to keep us on the air. And tune in in two weeks to hear even more of Subliminally Correct.